So with that, we are going to be touching on some of the blue ocean values that we've started our sermon series on. Um, but I'm going to be intermingling some of those values today with remembering All Saints Day, right? Because it's late October and it's that time of year when we let ourselves collectively think about death and the beyond. And so we're going to remember some of our loved ones together this morning. Now, some of you might come from backgrounds where you don't really know what All Saints Day is, or maybe you didn't celebrate it. And so in the early centuries of Christianity, when people died, the believers would come together to remember them every year, especially if they were considered like a saint. And the saints were often remembered with feast days. So you might have heard of things like the Feast of St. Stephen's or the Feast of St. Nicholas. I was like, there has to be a Feast of St. Rachel, right? So I Googled it this morning. <laughs> there was. And they've made it, um, they put it on November 1st, which makes sense because at a certain point about 1,300 years ago, uh, one of the popes just sort of collectively took all of these feast days, not all of them, they're still really big ones, but took some of the smaller ones, I'll say, like lumped them all together and said, we're just going to celebrate all of them on All Saints Day. And so All Saints Day takes place officially the day after Halloween, so it's on November 1st. And then, after the church did this, they started saying, you know, we should really honor all of the departed, saint or not. And so they created a holiday called All Souls Day. And so that's the day after that, so November 2nd. So that's widely recognized across most of the global church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholics, and a lot of the mainline Protestant churches all celebrate this. Now, Halloween itself seems to have originated as like a Celtic harvest festival, but eventually that was then merged in with All Saints and All Souls, and it became a three-day church festival called All Hollow Tide. Now, isn't that like the coolest church holiday? Like All Hollow Tide. And so for this, the last 1,300 years or so, that's when we come together and we remember the people who have gone before us. And we tend to, in churches, since we meet on just Sundays, we tend to take it the, first, or the Sunday that's closest to All Saints Day or All Souls Day, which is today, and celebrate that. But it's not just about remembering the people that went before us. It's actually also about experiencing this sort of mystical connection with and to those people who are with us. So in my line of work, you know, I, I sometimes have the privilege of sitting with people who are dying. And even outside of pastoring, I have done that with grandparents and great-grandparents and even a family friend who I wasn't with when she passed, but I was, in the, I was helping caretake for her for a few weeks beforehand. And so I thought I would speak just a little more personally or subjectively here for a second um, and just say that something that I've noticed is that often if, if death comes slowly for someone, it can feel a little bit like like in the weeks leading up to it, that almost like there's like a veil that lies between this realm and whatever comes next that starts to open a little bit for those who are kind of preparing to leave to join those who have gone before them. That doesn't always happen, but maybe you've seen this. You know, sometimes people who are sick will see people who they knew from long ago or people who have gone on. So an elderly friend of mine, she started seeing her sister and talking to her. Uh, my great-grandma, Mamie, um, was living with my grandma at the time, and I was in my early teens, and I remember she just used to say, do you hear that? And my sister and I would say, what? What, grandma? She, the singing. Do you hear the singing? I'm like, no, what is it? She's like, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Do you hear it? And then she'd start singing along with it. Sometimes it was hymns, something, sometimes it was something else. 
Um, she'd start talking to her siblings who had gone before her. And she, she did have some dementia. She was not on like any drugs at that point, though. And so I don't know what that is. Maybe it's like the sugars in our brains or the chemicals that are like coming and stimulating memory. Or maybe it's something more. Maybe it's both of those things. You know, back way back in the day when I worked at the corporate office at Borders right after college, I had this great boss. And I think she would probably describe herself as atheist, maybe agnostic. And I remember she came in one day, and she was probably in her mid-30s at the time when I knew her. She lost her mom really young when she was in her mid-20s. And so one day she came in, and she told me something that I think she might have said just because she knew I had a little bit of a spiritual bent and wouldn't maybe think it was weird. And so she told me that she had this experience that morning where she was standing in front of the mirror getting ready, and she just like felt her mom's presence behind her. And not in like a really scary way, but in this like loving, comforting way. And she said it was just like so tangible. She just started like talking to her. And so I would say like in both Rachel and my lines of work, Rachel's a, a therapist, we tend to hear people's stories like this, people who are religious as well as non-religious. And maybe it's just like our human way of dealing with death, right? Imagining loved ones who are like nearby but unseen. But I would just say that like, I've, I've been in rooms with dying people where I felt like there was some kind of like a shift in the space. And um, it's like happened often enough to me that if I'm speaking like very frankly, it's one of the things that like tethers me to my faith. When sometimes I'm like, I don't, is there something? There's like something to me that feels like there's more out there. And so the science loving part of me, this is just the way I imagine it. I imagine it as like the mingling of dimensions that are beyond the three or four that we can see or sense in our current bodies, right? So string theory postulates there are maybe 10 or 11 dimensions. And so I like to think of this as like, like a mingling that happens sometimes near death or sometimes in prayer or in meditation. And I think for lack of better language, we might say it's, it's almost like feeling the presence of heaven breaking in. And it's like, I don't want to overstate it, but I also don't want to understate it because it's not provable. It's completely subjective experience, but it's like experience of a lot of humans over thousands of years of just saying there's something, there's something that we don't have language or understanding of at this point. So in the Celtic Catholic tradition, places where these dimensions seem to overlap, they call them thin places or thin spots. And most often that term, thin spot, describes a place of prayer, these, these spaces where believers have like well-trod with prayer or with pilgrimaging. So like, say if you go to like Spain and you walk the Carmino de Santiago, has anybody heard of the Way of St. James? It's a very uh, famous pilgrimage walk that you can take like up in the mountains of northern Spain. There's a place called Iona, which is an island off of Scotland that's said to be a thin spot that I've always wanted to go to, and actually the community that lives there is um, completely help friendly to us queer people. Um, but they say that these thin spots in those places, you might be more apt to experience God. Maybe not, but it's like a common enough experience that we actually have words to describe it. Who knows, maybe we just go there and we just feel more open to having such an experience. But the way I process of it is I think, you know, that process of dying feels to me like it opens a thin spot that maybe is grace to the dying by a loving God as she helps people into this next part of the journey. Now, the next part of the journey is a little bit mysterious. 
right? In Western Christian tradition, we have that, you know, the traditional picture of like a heaven and hell. But that imagination that we have of heaven and hell really developed in the Middle Ages and was very much popularized by Dante. So in the Jewish tradition, there was like a holding place that they called Sheol, and it was just the realm of the dead. And that was a place where people would go to wait for a later time when God would come and judge humanity and like make the world right, right? So some of, if you listen to um, Dr. Sarah Emanuel last week, she was talking about that Jewish hope of the resurrection of the dead with judgment and justice um, and things being made right. That's where that, that comes from, is from the Jewish uh, tradition. And so then that idea then was carried over into Christian beliefs. Now, what exactly does it mean? We don't know, right? So again, I picture it as a time maybe when the dimensions of heaven like more fully break in and we experience far more than we experience now, that maybe we can see various dynamics more fully and justice and peace can prevail in that space. And it might be a time where Jesus can hold accountable um, people for things that they have done and offer other ways to make repairs if they choose to do that. Don't know. In terms of hell, I feel like I could do like a whole sermon on it, and maybe I should. Um, but you know, the, the, the sort of short thought on that is that in Jesus's day, there was no concept of hell as we imagine it, you know, with like the flames and the eternal torment. Um, there was no concept of that in the Jewish tradition. The word that's translated as hell in the New Testament is a word, Gehenna. It was a Greek word. Now, when Jesus was alive, Gehenna was a valley that was just outside the Jerusalem gates, and that was the trash dump where the city's garbage would go, and they would burn it, and then dogs were known to wander around in it looking for scraps. Now, the valley of Gehenna is still a real place, and today there's like fine dining restaurants there. I actually had a very fine meal in hell about 20 years ago. <laughs> um, not hell, Michigan. You can get decent ice cream there, but probably not fine dining. Um, but yeah, the Valley of Gehenna is still a very real place just outside the south gates, a little bit southwest of the city. So Gehenna, or hell, was more of a metaphor of like, for what acting outside God's best for us feels like, right? So when we make decisions that demean our own humanity or that harm other people, or we might even say if it's um, if we're living under systems that oppress us, that, that feeling of living under a sinful system, that feels like we're wandering a garbage dump looking for scraps. That's what hell is. Now, will there be a place or a time of punishment in the afterlife? I don't know. I sometimes think, well, if God is indeed a just God, I would hope for some kind of reckoning. Um, I mean, you might wonder, like, gosh, I don't want my abusive uncle hanging out with me or you know, the classic, I don't want Hitler hanging out, right? We don't really know what that means, but there does seem to be some implication in the book of Revelation that, um, that there will be a reckoning, but perhaps all people will be offered a chance to bring healing and reconciliation, but they still might not choose to do so. Does that make sense? So like book of Revelation, I think it's, the la it's one of the last chapters, 22, I think, you see what I see is like a picture of the dimensions sort of colliding. This idea of a, the new city of Jerusalem is sort of the imagining of this coming out of heaven. There's gates that are always open, trees with leaves for the healing of the nations. And you're like, gosh, if this colliding's already happened, why do we still need healing? But they're still there. But there's also still a trash dump outside and there's still people wandering around like dogs looking for scraps. And so to me, that tells me 
it's maybe one idea or one thought um, of maybe what might be happening, that maybe there's still time for reconciliation and maybe some people will choose not to do that. TBD, right? So what do Christians believe happens to us between now and the time when this fullness of God's presence comes and these heavens open up to bring justice and peace? We don't have a great term for it in English, so we might call it heaven, um, might call it a holding spot, might think of it as like a place we gather with the ancestors, a place that we sometimes catch a glimpse of in our current sta uh, state, like in, a, in prayer or in one of those thin spots. We see this idea of all the people going before us together being gathered um, in the very early parts of the Bible. So in the Hebrew scripture, dying is often talked about as being gathered to your people. So I think I sent these to the people online, and I'm just going to read them to those of you who are here in the room. Like in Genesis 35, when Isaac passed away, it says, Then he breathed his last, and he died, and he was gathered to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Then in Genesis 49, when Jacob passed away, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up onto the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. In Numbers 27, when Moses was about to die, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up this mountain, see the land that I've given the Israelites, and after you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people. In Judges 2.10, all that generation were gathered to their fathers. It's Abraham, it's Ishmael, it's Aaron, over and over, gathered to your fathers, gathered to your people. And this idea is that there's a great company of humans that are waiting for the combining of the ages in the Christian imagination for the return of Jesus coming back. And so this idea of being gathered to the ancestors in the Jewish tradition, I think it resonates quite a lot, especially with indigenous people, with many Asian and African cultures for whom interacting with the ancestors is already like a part and parcel of their lives. I've listened to some churches, um, some pastors in the black church traditions talk about kind of rediscovering this awareness of that gathering place of the ancestors and praying in their company for strength and for endurance. And we might call that the great cloud of witnesses. Right, so in Hebrews 12, which you heard Micah read this morning, the author talks about being surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And so I imagine this as like the people who have gone before us in that holding place where we gather and he read Hebrews 12, the chapter before, the author's like going on, and I call it like the Faith Hall of Fame chapter, right? And the author's going through, and it's naming like all of these big people in the Jewish tradition, Abel and Abraham and Moses and David and Rahab, and talking about how they are commended to God for their faith. And then it starts by saying, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders us the sin that entangles, and let's run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Right, so the picture here is this, is that like when we need encouragement, we can imagine ourselves surrounded by the many people of faith who came before us, right? Like we're in a marathon, and they're like at certain points cheering us on. They're the ones that are like throwing us the energy gel, maybe handing us Gatorade, um, some of my friends who are runners, I mean, clearly I'm not a runner, but some of my friends are. Like, I know Andrea, who's probably down with, with uh, Itty Bitty, um, with Addie right now. But like having certain people at key places at a marathon run was like really helpful for making sure that she could continue um, running at those key miles for finishing strong. 
You know, if you look at even like the transfiguration, Jesus, when he went up to pray, he took his friends Peter, James, and John, and there before them as they were praying, the prophets Moses and Elijah, both long dead, appeared and Jesus was speaking with them and interacting with them. And so I think when you pray, you can maybe experiment with imagining yourself like surrounded by some of these supportive others. So last week we talked about how our faith community is called to be part of like reimagining what Christianity can look like after people have deconstructed some of the toxic bits that have been building up. And for me, I think All Saints is actually a great time to talk about some of those reconstructed values because part of reconstruction is seeing ourselves as more holistically connected, right? You've, you hear us say this all the time, right? Connected to God, to ourselves, to each other, and to the creation. And I think each other also includes the people who have gone before us. And I think this picture of us like running a marathon and being cheered on by the saints, it reminds us that we are just running one small yard in a much longer race, right? That it keeps us humble, but also lets us know this is precious. Like you don't want to be the one that drops the baton, right? We, we take the baton and we bear witness to a way of living that hopefully is producing love and kindness and generosity and justice. And then we can pass it along to the next generation in hopes that at least the seeds of that kind of living will help all of creation thrive. We also try to model being okay with uncertainty, right? So like in a sermon like today's, just being honest about what is and what is not in the Bible about things like the afterlife. You know, I, I've worked with enough people who have been terrorized by fears of eternal torment. And I would say, especially in the queer community, queer people who grew up in like really fundamentalist traditions, like have sometimes just been really, really tormented by that. Um, and I think it's helpful to talk about that and to name it and to say, you know, I don't, that's actually not most of the landscape of Christian orthodoxy. And I don't think it's that good for like small kids. Like I learned about it as a small kid and as a very imaginative young child, that was quite scary for me. Um, I think that idea has been far more useful for people who have been trying to control others' beliefs and behaviors than it has been for us just trying to live our best to follow the Creator. Okay, I think fear can be a motivator, but I don't know that it's the healthiest motivator. So I think it's, it's helpful to say we're not scared of saying, we don't exactly know, but I know this about God. I think there's a God, and I think this God is loving and kind and just. And so I think there's some glimpses of what that might look like, and so I don't feel scared of it. And I can just say, I don't know, and I can offer to you how I've tried to make sense of it, and then you can also offer to me maybe how you've tried to make sense of it. Another part of a reconstructed faith is just trying to cultivate emotional health in our spirituality. So I think one of the things that's really important is that we can feel just as much at ease with sadness and with grief as we can with joy and with contentment. And I think we have to be able to make space um, in a community, especially one that's trying to enact justice and that has quite a few people who have experienced really significant oppression. We have to be able to hold bigger emotions that are sometimes uncomfortable. Um, anger and sorrow that are produced by systems of injustice, like that is a whole thing. Right? It's a whole thing. Um, and so part of emotional health is creating these healing communities that can do this. And we won't do it perfectly, but that's part of our aim too. And so part of like celebrating all saints and talking about it is saying, it's okay, like 
grief and sadness are just part of life, and we can hold that together and not have to feel like we have to hold it just on our own. Our culture is particularly bad at mourning and remembering loved ones. I mean, what do most of you guys get off for work? Probably three to five days? And that's if it's like if you lose somebody who's like in your immediate type of family. None for a dear friend, and for many people, your friends might be more of your like chosen family. You know, some cultures, you get to wear black for at least a year just to indicate that, like, I'm not okay, because of course you're not okay, and you're probably not okay for even more than a year. So something that I've found helpful is sometimes just lighting a candle in memory of a loved one. And since, since it's All Saints Day, um, I've got some candles that are back there on a table in the back corner. And so I like to honor some of the people who have come before us. Some of you brought pictures. I printed out a few pictures of people who have been part of our faith community who have died um, so that we can remember them together back there as well. So whether you brought a picture or you didn't, if after we take communion together and during the last songs, if it would be meaningful to you to go and light a candle in memory of someone, or even in grief for things like, you know, the destruction of the creation, for whatever it is that's helpful for you in grieving, I invite you to do that. I think it's a lovely way to just like do something tangible to mark that and name it before God. All right, so we're going to um, have our meditation. We often do sometimes a guided meditation or a silent meditation. And I think today what I'd like to invite you to do, if you'd like, um, is as we just take a minute in silence, just imagine the great cloud of witnesses. And maybe specifically for you, just imagine like who are the people who would be there just sort of cheering you on or standing with you. So we'll do this for about a minute and then I'll, I'll close us out. So Holy Spirit, just remind us and encourage us this morning. So Jesus, we thank you so much for those who have gone before us, um, who have passed along ways of following you, of following a creator who is good and loving and kind and just. And we ask that we can do our part in running this race. We ask that you would encourage us when we need encouraging. We ask that you would help us to see ourselves as connected to a much, much larger endeavor, that we are but the next chapter in a much larger book, um, and that we'll take comfort in that, and that we can 
Yeah, just allow ourselves to um, experience your goodness as it breaks forth in our realm, that you would help us to feel you and experience you even more. Um, Yeah, Jesus, we just thank you so much that we can be part of this. Amen.